Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. It's John Faithful Hamer. I'm very happy to be having a conversation today with uh, the well-known writer Barbara Kay, who I've known for all of my <laughs> all of my life. This is quite an honor. I uh, welcome Barbara. Thank welcome. you, thank you, John. R- so, real pleasure to be here. So we have so many different things to talk about, but a couple of sort of older business, some from some of your previous work that I want to talk about is first of all, you've taken. Uh, very controversial position on the issue of pit bulls, which <laughs> I was quite, I, I found out about that first because, uh, as I was mentioning to you, I, I wrote this piece on pit bulls when we were arguing about this, and I have never received such hate mail. And I've written on lots of different controversial mm-hmm. issues, and, you know, people have disagreed with me sometimes quite strenuously, but I've never received anything quite like that. Like, I was almost ready to contact the law enforcement it was the, some mm-hmm. of these messages were that bad and so uh, and i then somebody said to me there's like oh you know you barbara k has also argued <laughs> this stuff you should go check out you know what she's and sure enough you had uh, made many of the same uh, same yes. arguments so i'm wondering um well perhaps if you could just speak to what is your position on the issue and why do you think they are so um, intense on this. Okay, I do have a position, of course, be, and I have had since 2006 when I first, I think it was even earlier when I did my first, uh, I start, first started working at the Post in 2003, wanted to show them that I was very eclectic in my, <laughs> yeah. in my ability to, you know, uh, commentate on all kinds of issues. And I had read a, a report of a pitbull's attack, a, a, a pitbull attack in Colorado. It was particularly vicious. So I started looking around for, um, you know, what had been commentary on this issue. I found a phenomenal article in City Journal magazine that backed up my own instinctive feeling about them, wrote a piece, said, you know, these uh, pitbulls are inherently higher risk dogs. They have this genetic component, blah, blah, blah. And before I knew it, uh, I, I was getting feedback just like you. Hateful? Beyond hateful. I, they were calling me Mrs. Pitler, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, comparing pit bulls, I kid you not, to Anne Frank. No, no. Oh uh, no, no. I, I, I have had those comparisons made. And the uh, usual comparison is you want to exterminate pit bulls the way Hitler wanted to exterminate the Jews. They, they make that oh actual comparison. God. And uh, so that, of course, uh, pushed all my buttons, you sure, know, on, on yeah. every different level. And that was when I started to do real research. I mean, real research. And I think I have read pretty well every uh, important piece of work. Uh, and and every I've seen every argument for pit bulls. And I've seen all the stuff against. And the stuff against is all based in data, statistics, uh, evident, real evidence, genetics, uh, you name it. The other side, it's all mantras and emotion and bad owners and as if bad om- owners could explain this epidemiology. You know, people who've had their, anybody that ever tells me that their dog or cat was attacked by another dog, it's almost invariably a pit bull. And in fact, statistically, pit bulls, uh, if a, if a, Domestic animal deaths that are dog bite related, 95% are from pit bulls. And that includes horses and cows, by the way. They're not afraid to attack, you know, larger animals. And if that is not convincing to people, I don't know what is. Uh, You cannot say that's bad ownership. Uh, You you have to say that's instinct. Have you noticed that there's an interesting parallel between the arguments that 
the pro pit bull people use and the arguments that are used for pro guns in the states they, it's the same sort of like guns don't kill people people kill people so exactly pit bulls exactly. don't kill people yeah. bad pit bull owners bad pit bull owner. as owners. if as if bad pit bull owners were pulling the trigger of these dogs you know prey impulse uh these dogs are pulling their own triggers and I always say, okay, so how do I be a good owner of a pit bull? How do I train a dog not to do what it was bred to do? I mean, if I had a greyhound, would I take it to the bark park and say, now don't run. We're gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna train you when you see a rabbit. I'm gonna train you to walk or trot. I am, you know, you are not going to run. I mean, this is to me absurd. And uh, there are certain epidemiological phenomena that you can relate to, say, environment or to this or to that. But past a certain point, uh, it becomes unscientific. And But they don't care about that because this is an emotional subject uh, and that's they've got their narrative and they're sticking to it. And uh, you asked me why I think the pit bulls became so such a big thing. Uh, I'll tell you, it has to do with race and racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they always use that word, by the way, that it is racist to I've distinguish. I've heard that a lot, yeah. Yeah, except that to be racist, uh, the person being discriminated against has to know that they are being discriminated against. Uh, racism is a human, a human idea. Uh, dogs do not understand it, and mm-hmm. and they are bred uh, as as uh, products. I mean, they're living, but they're still assembly line bred. So you cannot say it's racist to. It's like saying it's racist to prefer, you know, uh, a Kia to a to a Hyundai. I mean, you know, <laughs> really, uh, you want a certain kind of performance or a Jaguar. You want. Yeah. You know, so you buy that. Oh, but if you buy that, then you've dis- you've discriminated against all the other kinds. Of- yeah. So it's it's a dumb argument. But what happened was um, that when the whole idea of we are a racist society, racist society uh, began in the 70s, uh, got under really underway, uh, people started to look at the kinds of uh, animals that um, that black people favored when they had gangs and, and you know, and they, they're heavily into pit bulls, uh, the gangs and the, the drug people and all that. And they, so they began to say, uh, you know, if you discriminate against pit bulls, you're really discriminating against black people. And there began this sensibility that in order to prove that you are not a racist, you had to stop being a racist about the dogs that were favored by certain groups of people. That takes the the whole notion of dog whistle politics to another Hello. level. Hello, <laughs> yeah, I would say. Uh, in any case, it didn't really get moving. and There were, there were relatively few until uh, the, uh, oh, in the 1970s, I think in the low 1970s, there were something like 250,000 pit bulls in, in North America. Now there's like 6 million, okay? Mm-hmm. So that, that is an unbelievable jump. You don't get that kind of a jump just because somebody says, oh, I like my dog, you should get one too. I mean, you don't get, you get that from a movement. And the movement to launder the image of the pit bull has been well-organized, well-funded, and fanatical, fanatical. Uh, Got a much uh, big jump in um, popularity with uh, What's his name? The one that that went, that went to prison for the dog fighting. The the Michael yes, Michael Vick. Michael <clears throat> Vick. Okay, so they you they milked that. You know, oh look at all these poor dogs. They've been so abused, and that's why they they're vicious because they were made to be. And yada yada. Let me tell you about dog fighters. They want pit bulls for a reason, and not because they make them fight. 
they they want them because the dogs like to fight. They take joy in fighting, and that's why they won't use any other kind. Anyways, mm-hmm. so Vic was this villain, this horrible guy. Uh, it was unfortunate that he was black. Okay, you know they they sort of like ignore that, and and then they uh, they used uh, these poor abused pit bulls, pictures of them, and people started adopting and rescuing pit bulls like crazy. Uh, and now you've got shelters pushing them. You've got a whole the entire dog industry is pretty well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, trust me, mm-hmm. but they're all involved in, in promoting this idea that, that uh, it, it, is, it is a kind of racism. And even brainy intellectuals like, like Michael, uh, what's his name, Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell yeah. is pushing this idea that to, distinct, to, 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 to uh, uh, discriminate against pit bulls is a form of racism. And this is so sickening to me that, that somebody with an actual brain Mm. you know, is pushing this ridiculous idea. So uh, in a, it, so it's very tied up with, it's a cultural, it is a cultural phenomenon, very much uh, a projection of what's going on in the culture, um, you know, in terms of, of ideas and ideology. And, uh, and I've read some PhD theses that would blow your mind uh, that have to do with this very subject, how the pit bull stands in for the black person in our society in terms of uh, the way people have, because he looks fierce and he looks, you know, tough, uh, but actually he's like just all mellow. You know, he's just this wonderful dog that's been gotten a bad rap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's very, very odd, you know, and I, I'm always, I always think it's worrisome when people who are experts in a particular field are afraid to speak publicly about it. So, for instance, I've I've asked a number of veterinarians, including um, our our personal vet right here in Plateau Montreal. I'm not going to name her, obviously, but uh, <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about, Sebastian. And I've asked like vets. I've said, you know, what do you think about this whole the whole thing? And the vets will immediately tell you, uh, yes, of course, we see lots and lots of animals come in that have been hurt by pit bulls. They are, um, they are, you know, they're not the most aggressive dog, but when they get aggressive, they can do a lot of damage yeah. you know, because they have uh, really strong jaws and they have, they mm-hmm. tend to lock on. And I said, well, why don't you say anything about that? They're like, are you kidding? Mm-hmm. If I say something like that, I, my, my place will be, my business will be shut down tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They will all, they will mob me. Yeah. They will uh, go on a big campaign. They will make everybody not come to my place. Yeah. I cannot speak out. And on any issue, when the people who have, you know, I'm not a veterinarian. I mean, I'm not an ethologist that specializes in dogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've read up on it a fair amount, you know, probably more than most people. But when the people who do actually know what they're talking about are afraid to speak out publicly, that's always a big red flag that something's going yeah, on. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I got into it is because uh, that, that uh, you know, it, it's part of this whole, the big lie thing. Anything that's based on a lie and people feed into it, uh, that really raises my hackles and that's why I did get into it partly and I have also had conversations with veterinarians and they also have told me. Um, but the veterinarian associations who are there to protect veterinarians' interests, they will always sign these, oh, no, we don't need breed-specific legislation because, you know, all dogs are equal. And it's, oh, again, going back to this cultural thing, multiculturalism. Multiculturalism also fostered this idea 
that it, it, I call it multi-caninism. You know, that, that, you know, all cultures are the same or are worthy. All dogs are the same. All breeds are the same. And you can't say that, that it is a form of racism. Anyways, the, the associations are in a conflict of interest because they make money from dogs and they will be mobbed if they, if they don't sign these anti-BSL things. Uh, I was on a breakfast show, a breakfast TV show, a couple of weeks ago on a panel about this. And, of course, three were, three were against the legislation and I was the only one for it. <laughs> and one of them was a veterinarian, and she had obviously just gotten into this this whole issue not long ago because she came with all her notes, you know. Yeah. And and she was very busy with her little mantras. And, of course, she started with the one mantra that I just didn't let her get. You know, she says, <clears throat> well, Ontario banned pit bulls, and now they have more bites than it. I said, I'm going to stop you right there because breed-specific legislation is not about bites. It's about maulings, maimings, dismemberments, and deaths. So those have gone down in Ontario, and there's more bites because there's more dogs since it was like, you know, so forget this bite business. And she was very flustered because she, she wasn't prepared to, to defend what BSL is really about. She wasn't prepared prepared to defend her argument because she thought oh brilliant all oh, wow there's more bites you know that this word bites you'll see it everywhere when you see anti the people that are anti they've bites 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 but you know eight days in a hospital with half your face hanging off is not a bite that's a yeah. mauling and they won't talk about maulings and they don't like it when you insist on talking about maulings uh, any child that's been in the hospital for more than for eight days or longer because of a dog attack it is 100% a pit bull. And you can, you know, one day it could be a German Shepherd or a Husky or something else. Two days, well, maybe, you know, by the time you get to eight days in hospital, it's that serious, it's a pit bull. They don't like to hear that either. So, you know, um, after, after the program, I said to her, uh, you know, by the way, you're in a conflict of interest, you know that. And what, what do you, what, what? I said, you make money off dogs. I said, so you're going on a show, it's easy to take your position because it's like, oh yeah, look, she loves all dogs. I said, the vets who don't agree with you will not go on because they know that it will hurt their business. Oh, so really, yeah, you I shouldn't even be that, on, yeah. yeah, you shouldn't have been on this show. And she was like, I thought she was going to make a lunge at me. Like, you know, I, <laughs> I got out of there. I got out of there pretty, <laughs> like pretty a quick. Pitbull? Yeah, you know, but, like, you know what? But the host of the show actually kind of agrees with me. So he gave me a big wink and yeah. he says, you know, <laughs> they, <laughs> so yeah. that was nice. Yeah. yeah no, it's uh, my, my son, my, my son, Tristan was bitten by a dog, uh, not by a pit bull, mm-hmm. but by a terrier. And it, you know, took, almost took the nose off his face. He yeah. had to go to the hospital. They had to kind of put it back on and he had to get, Jeez, that's awful. he has a scar that's like terrible there. But you know, if he had been bitten by a pit bull, if that was a pit bull that did that, the damage would have been severe, extensive. I, I volunteer sometimes at the Essentialist where they have the, you know, the, the children's for the long-term rehabilitation there. And there's kids there that have been bit by pit bulls. And their faces are just yeah. it, a mess. Yeah, when you're you talking know, it's about absolutely yeah. a mess. When you're talking right? about a kid who has to have a facial <clears throat> reconstruction or has to have 15 plastic surgeries, you're usually talking about a pit bull, a Rottweiler, sometimes a German Shepherd, and of course they'll give you the argument about well in Canada it's Huskies that do. I said yeah, you know why? Because our Huskies up north they live semi-feral. Yeah. There, a lot of them are hybrids with wolves. Everybody thought that was a great idea in the 90s. Oh, what fun. You know, we'll have like this. Uh, <laughs> we'll all have our own dire wolves, you know, yeah. like, whoa, that's so great. Um, and they run around wild. Uh, yeah, 
that's why huskies are doing a lot of biting up there because they're not pets. They're, they're work dogs that are left to forage for themselves in the off season. Uh, so don't talk to me about huskies. You know, that's, yeah. it, that's it's a special case. That's a red yeah. herring. Yeah, it is yeah. a special case. It's uh, a, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, they're yeah. pack animals. Sure they are. I mean, well, I just yeah. wanted my, actually the producer of the show, Sebastian Furtado had a personal experience with a uh, let's hear it let's which hear was it. very very <laughs> harrowing so i was hoping he I'm, could i'm just, not laughing at the harrowing just part <laughs> it. Uh, just tell what it is hello this is the first time anyone's gonna hear my voice it's oh well, hi. super strange <laughs> i feel like i'm in the hot seat um yeah so my dog was attacked by a pit bull in january of 2015 and i was at uh Park Jean Mans in the morning when dogs Say are... a little dog? Uh, no, he's, he's actually a rescue from up north. Ah. So he's one of these husky dogs who uh, was rescued by um, a foundation called Animatch where they go and they neuter these dogs because because of the risk they pose to communities, um, they'll end up rounding up the dogs, not this organization, but the people who live up north. They'll round them up and shoot them because they yeah. will end up you know killing their kids if if they're hungry. So he was an adopted dog from there, 70 pounds, really big, but we've had him since a puppy and he's, you know, very good, non-aggressive dog. He's never attacked (laughs) anything but the squirrels in the backyard, (laughs) admittedly. But uh, yeah, so he was off leash and then the other dog was also off leash because you're allowed for this one hour period. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my dog saw the pit bull and it was an American stratified fire terrier <laughs> there's a bunch of different things and the pit, pit bull people will say pit bull's not a breed it's just like a category of breeds and there's like the, the staffies and there's the apv yeah yeah and they're yeah, all yeah. the same genetic cluster yeah yeah exactly. yeah, 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 like, yeah okay yeah. sure and like you can at least you know you can tell the difference between a poodle a husky and a exactly american pit bull terrier uh and any variation of it so my dog picked up the pit bull stick and started running around and then within an instant the dog just beelined it for my dog, like there was no provocation, there was no. Uh, <laughs> my dog wasn't uh, didn't have his hackles up. He was really just grabbed a stick that the dog had, and um, the dog was resource guarding. This is what you call call it when dogs protect um, their high value resources. <laughs> and he yeah. just did a full on <laughs> assault on my dog and pinned him down and just locked his jaw on him and started to shake him to death. And, uh, and kept probably would have continued if you. Oh, he, he w- it was uh, it was an unrelenting, unprovoked, brutal attack on a dog that was at least 20 pounds bigger than it. Like this, this dog must like the, the pit bull or the staff. He must have been 50 pounds. My dog is minimum 60, 65 pounds. And he just would not let go. And yeah, they're was, not afraid. They're not no, afraid. They, they they attack horses and cows. They're the only dog that will attack a horse or a cow. Well, and and by the way, they they have killed horses and cows. So that yeah. that shows you. Well, it's a really interesting thing you bring up actually because after the well, so basically, let me finish the story about the attack. So uh, I had to stomp on the dog's head at least ten times, and I was training Muay Thai, you know, three to four times a week. So I had really strong kicks. I trained this all the time, and I even gave really strong kicks to the to the side of the dog, and nothing would stop it. And the owner was not like you know someone you would consider irresponsible. She wasn't like a drug dealer. No, she wasn't <laughs> a drug dealer. She was not sketchy. Well, she was a woman, and she was a private medical doctor. This is not someone who <laughs> has. That's that's amazing. And what know, was she doing all this time? Screaming. Oh, screaming. Yes, of course. Screaming. Very what helpful. Gonna, yeah. What is she gonna do? Yeah. What is she gonna do? So yeah. um, then eventually, I was able. To, we were able to separate them after probably three minutes. My dog was pouring blood all over the <laughs> snow. 
a bunch of people around. Fortunately, like I, my body was, I gave out and so a, a woman offered to help carry my dog as he was bleeding oh, I th- all over the horrible. place. Um, anyway, it was a very, very traumatic experience. Uh, the dog had a previous record. It had attacked a police. Oh, horse. what a surprise. It what a, a surprise. I'm, of course, I'm being sorry. It attacked a police yeah. horse on Mount Royal. Okay. So, so, so this owner knew about the previous history and let him loose in a dog park. Yes, in uh, a that park. Is, it was not in a dog park. It was in a park with no gates. Okay, so that is totally irresponsible. She should have, by the way, had the dog put down once he'd attacked, you know. I mean, that. but that's asking a lot if you love a dog. But that's a good sign that you better keep that dog muzzled, on a leash, never let him loose with other animals. So she is totally irresponsible, and I hope she paid your vet bills. She did. Right. Uh, she asked, you know, very many times to not file a report, and I... I grappled with this a lot and I had a lot of people saying oh well you know don't report it don't do this don't oh, that do means that. she plans on bringing him back that if, if it's not reported and she had told me uh look I'm gonna keep him on a leash all the time and when she told me she would just keep him on a leash I said that's just not enough yeah it isn't your dog needs to be muzzled mm-hmm. and the fact that she wasn't considering muzzling the dog at all times made me just say you know what for the res- for the like you know well-being of other people and um uh, for, for the ability not, uh, sorry, I want to make sure that other people don't have to go through this. Good so, for you. so I reported it, and the police, when I went, they said, you know, they're not such bad dogs, right? Oh, my God. We have a lot of uh, people here who own pit bulls. They're really not such bad dogs. I don't really know. Why did you write such a long report? That's what they told me. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Uh, thank you for that, Sebastian. That's it's crazy. I remember when that was happening, when that, right after that happened. But uh, yeah. yeah. By, by the way, uh, there's a there's a website page or a Facebook page, and it's called uh, Pitbulls Shot or Confronted by the Police. Like they actually tally up, you know, how many, and 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 there are plenty, you know, so more than wow. any other dog, of course. That's uh, that's amazing. It's you know, I've I've been into snakes and kind of lizards and stuff like that my whole life, and I remember wanting to get. Um, a, a cobra or another kind of, and I found out you, you can't you cannot get poisonous snakes because there's municipal bylaws oh, that that's say so un- seems so unfair <laughs> you know you're not allowed to get there's you know there's no freedom of, there's, there's no freedom in this, I, know, there's I, no freedom, I, right? I don't know and you know what it's that's discriminatory <laughs> that's discriminatory I mean you know gar- I bet I bet they wouldn't people. care if you yeah. had a garter snake a garter snake yeah, they, they wouldn't don't. they wouldn't care yeah. yeah but they wouldn't get let you get a python they or won't a let cobra. me get a cobra you can get a python oh you can get a python but not a cobra not a cobra so you can't poisonous snakes there's a whole list. You like, can be squeezed to death, but you can't. <laughs> All right. Actually, okay. I just want to know what the value system yeah. here is. This is this in this big, whole big pythons and bows okay. and constrictors are now being being actually okay. uh, restricted in a lot of places. But poisonous snakes, you can't get one. And the logic is that it's not safe to have this kind of pet. Really, within, not safe like, to have a poison. <laughs> yeah, right. So I don't understand how you can get because the number of people that are bitten by pet poisonous yeah. snakes in North America. It happens every year. It yeah. happens. People die from it. How many? Um, I don't remember the exact number, but there's enough that it makes sense why a lot of municipalities have banned Well, that. at least they're not out walking in the parks with them, you know, so... <laughs> Walk, walking their <laughs> at cobra. Least, at walking least they're the cobra, ones yeah. most likely to die. So if, yeah. you know, they rather good. I mean, if you're going to die of stupidity, that, that might be a good way to go. <laughs> That's not a bad way to go. You know what? I think yeah. we ought to move on to another yeah, subject because yeah. so, we're, um, we're going to start getting I silly here. Yeah. We're already um, getting silly. The, another, 
issue that's that I found this interesting commonality to, between the two of us is you've also advocated for the city-state idea, right? Now, this yeah. is, um, we're going to have somebody on the podcast uh, who's coming from Toronto next weekend who's also a big advocate um, for this. Um, and the problem I see, which you identified in one of your articles on this, was that right now we pay all of our taxes to Quebec City and to Ottawa, and then they redistribute the money. But in fact, almost all of our population is located in cities. This is where the action is. This is where they have to deal with a lot of problems. And generally speaking, what happens is the provinces and the federal government as well, but less so, they consistently shortchange the cities, right? And they, which is really, really kind of leading to a lot mm. of the problems that we have in our cities. But anyway, so why do you support the idea of making Montreal a city-state? Well, I think that uh, Montreal, well, a few years ago when I was very into that subject, uh, Montreal was experiencing a lot of economic, it was on a downside. I think we've recovered somewhat since then, but uh, we were, we Montreal used to be an extremely wealthy city, and of yeah. course it was the top city in Canada, and it was politics that, that, that put it into uh, second place and, and a diminished city. Um, but I think Montreal has the potential to be a phenomenally successful in a global society. We're now in a global society, an international city, um, and it wouldn't take much uh, rejigging of some of the <clears throat> of some of the the ideas and the and the uh, regulations and laws to make it that way. And uh, we could be like uh, you know, I think Berlin is an international city, and uh, um, what are the others? Singapore, whatever they are. You know, we could we could have that clout. Uh, but it would mean we're a multicultural society in Montreal and not elsewhere outside the province. I think that fact should be recognized as the advantage that it is. Uh, so it would open up. Uh, would, so many people don't come here because of the language laws and because of the restrictive educational laws for their children and all of that stuff. I mean, we're missing the boat on all kinds of invest, you know, investment people that would come and spend their working lives here. So I can see where it wouldn't take much to attract them and uh, give them quality of life here in a way that would, you know, and you could still keep, it would still be a French city, it would still be a, everybody would be bilingual in the same way because that it's an advantage to be bilingual. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, so you'd, you'd have all the benefits and, you know, uh, none of the deficits of being controlled by a provincial capital that, as you say, it's far away. Uh, we're, we're the heavyweights in terms of, of uh, the productivity of the province. Oh, we pay uh, all the bills. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, not enough say in, in how our city uh, is, is, uh, functions. What would you think about the idea of actually shifting our, our tax burden so that municipalities actually collect uh, one third? So let's say whatever our, our tax system is right now, instead of giving right now, I give approximately half to the provincial government and half to the federal government. What if that amount stayed the same and I gave a third to the federal government, a third to the provincial government, and a third to the municipal government? Because right now we have the situation where the mayor, of, and this, Toronto is dealing with this. Actually, this is happening all over North sure. America. They have to go hat in hand yes. and begging to uh, to the state governments and to the federal governments to please give us money that we gave you. Mm -hmm. Like the money has come primarily from 
the big cities mm-hmm. from Toronto, from Montreal, and then they have to go and beg some distant. Yeah, I mean the trouble there capital. is the only the trouble there is that uh, unlike Toronto, which has the Greater Toronto Area, it's all very um, it's all very centralized. We have uh, Montreal, and then we have all these other you know cities around it. So mm-hmm. I don't know how it would work, how, how you, I'm not, that's not my strong point, by the way, taxation yeah. and all that. So I, I don't pretend to be any kind of an expert and I don't want to. Well, as they've done with law enforcement and with other kinds of essential services, there's ways that you can set up a kind of a commonwealth type system where you can still have independent municipalities that have a, you know, things that they do, but then you can also have an umbrella organization, which is the city state of Montreal, which would incorporate you know, perhaps all of everything on all the municipalities on the island of Montreal and then, you know, some of it the sounds, suburbs. It sounds very good to me. I do yeah. love I do love everybody having their own small city. I, I, I know it's more efficient to have like the GTA, you know, the greater. But um, I think people that live in small cities like I do in Westmount are far happier uh, yeah. because their concerns are, you know, you have immediate access yeah. and uh, your concerns are are um, <clears throat> usually attended to uh, in, in a much more well it's uh, a question of scale you yeah it's really is a question because I see you know I teach out on the West Island and a lot of my my students and my colleagues live out there and if they have an issue they can just go see the mayor of, of St. Anne Bellevue or of the yeah. of these they can go and see and it's small enough, right? Yeah. And if you look at that ramped up to the country level, my, my sister is living in New Zealand. And you in New Zealand, it, it the scale is reasonable enough where you can actually schedule an appointment to meet with the leader of the country. Really? Yeah. You that's might so have to, cool. it, you know, it's like trying to get a doctor in Quebec. You might have to wait six uh, months, but no, you will get an appointment. I love it. I love it. And you can actually well. meet with with the prime uh, minister. Yeah, so you know, I mean, no. look, it's what, what's great about Montreal or, or Westmount, where I live, I mean, I'm very privileged, I know, uh, is I'm practically downtown, but I'm, I'm in a village. I'm in a village and everybody <clears throat> knows who the councillors are and they know, you know, it's true, you could you can talk to the mayor. I mean, anytime yeah. you want, really. Um, so I have, I have the benefit of uh, both the big city and, you know, the village, and uh, that's why for me, quality of life here is so great. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry I can't be more specific about the taxes because that's yeah. an area I've never written about. So no, no, no that's that's fine. <laughs> so I, another issue that uh, sort of next week, Jordan Peterson yeah. is coming here to Montreal, a very controversial figure, and I know you were one of the first people to come out in support of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, you know, in interest of full disclosure, I, I should say when I still believed the hype about Jordan Peterson. I, I know you actually uh, had defended him already. When I actually, at first I believed, you know, everything that I had heard and I I went and listened to a couple of his videos and his voice, just uh, that Canadian accent, it just drove me oh, nuts. the prairie. Yeah, they, like, it just drove me absolutely nuts. And so I just couldn't get through the uh, any of the videos. But then my students just kept again and again bringing him up in class and they seemed very excited about him. A bit more boys and than girls, seemed eh? to, um, Yes, but not only. Okay. And definitely not only white at all. Like, I know that's, oh, that's the stereotype. It, that's not at all. It was like, um, yeah, but they were really into him and they were mentioning stuff uh, that they had learned from him, which had nothing to do with the caricature I was hearing. It sounded like a lot of really good advice, you know, like yeah, very... Yeah. So I decided to actually look into him myself. And when his book came out, I, I read it very carefully. And it was really 
good. I mean, it's a lot of good advice. It's like typical yeah. stuff you would learn back in the day, like in Hebrew school or in like Sunday school, or mm-hmm. you would learn it from your coaches, from your just good life advice it's that good people aren't advice. getting well, from yeah. anybody else. Now. I mean, I think I think his book, which I've also read carefully. In fact, I just uh, submitted a, a, a longer, uh, co- not a column, an article to uh, uh, one of the journals in Canada. Uh, they asked me to write about him and and uh, the editor had said, what do you think of Jordan Peterson? I said, well, you know, I, I kind of think he's a prophet. I think he's a modern prophet. He says, well, why would you say that? Why would you say, well, what is it about, you know? And I said, well, I'll have to think about what I mean by that. But that's a thought that, that came into my head when I first started hearing him and the excitement I felt at what he was saying and the courage he had in saying it. And it was like, whoa, I can't believe. And, he, and when he started getting famous for it, I thought, this is, this is great. This is great. Uh, he deserves this because the, he's saying stuff people are really hungry uh, to hear. And then I read his book and, and uh, I felt, yes, it's, it's really good advice, but mixed in with the good advice is a whole lot of, um, a whole lot of metaphysical stuff and, and, Gobbledygook. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> Nietzsche and Jung, like you can yeah. read it on, <clears throat> you can read it on several levels and Solzhenitsyn and, yeah. and uh, these are, you know, these are, are his uh, inspirations, his sources. <clears throat> and I started thinking to myself, well, you know, what, what, what is a prophet? I mean, he's not like a preacher exactly. And, you know, Billy Graham had just died uh, when I started uh, doing this article. Mm-hmm. And Billy Graham, um, well, he died at the age of, what, 99 or something? Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, when you add up his personal appearances, turns out that he had, uh, he had appeared before. He had, he had appeared before 215 million people. I mean, he was preaching six days a week and, and, and going around the country and going to other countries. In 185 countries, he spoke. So he appeared before more live human beings preaching uh, than anyone else in recorded history. Oh, wow. Yeah. Even more than John Wesley. Maybe. Or, because, well, John Wesley, I suppose, wasn't able to fly over to all yeah. these other countries and, you know, and just, uh, and, and also at the pace, the pace yeah. every single day. And, oh, these huge evangelical tents. And, I mean, you're talking to 3,000 people at yeah, once. I guess the population just was good. But John Wesley did travel around like crazy. Yeah, but and I he mean. he had that phenomenal voice where, yeah. you know, Ben Franklin says in his autobiography that you could actually hear him from, I don't know, it's like he had half a carrying a mile voice. Away. But he like, was probably speaking to 100 people at a time, mm. you know. So, but but I thought to myself, well, this is very interesting because in his two years of celebrity, Jordan Peterson has already spoken via, the, it's the opposite. I mean, Billy Graham, you can get tapes and you can get, you know, videos of him, but that's not what attracted people to him. That's not what transformed their lives. But Jordan Peterson is transforming people's lives through video and through YouTube and through podcasts and all that stuff. He's reached over 200 million people in terms of views of all the Joe Rogan and all the, you know, Rubin and the Rubin Report and all these other things. So now in two years, over 200 million people and his book, by the way, uh, just a few days ago, I heard from his son past the million sales mark hello wow. that's that's a lot of books to sell for a non-fiction book yeah um so so i said well okay billy billy graham w- w- was a preacher what was his message and his message was faith faith and salvation uh so he was interested in what people believed jordan peterson is interested in what people do he's interested in what people in their actions and he says 
you know, That's he's a really good distinction. He's wow. he's a, well, he's a profoundly religious person. Yeah. And even though his idea of who God is or what God is is a little bit like evasive, but he he does believe that you either have to believe in God or you have to act as though you believe in God if you're going to live a life that is fulfilling and where you do good. And uh, he says, religion is about proper behavior. That's a quote, proper behavior. Well, that really rang a bell with me because growing up Jewish, uh, the Torah, you know, uh, and the prophets, the ancient prophets, they were far more concerned with with um, people's behavior than they were with what they believed. And in yeah. fact, in the Torah, there's a, a, a famous uh, dictum, and it's va'aseh uh, v'nishma, uh, uh, and it means we will uh, we will do, and then we will listen. It's kind of a weird. It's a short form. I mean, we we will do, we will act, then we will listen, and it's interpreted to mean we'll we'll obey your commandments without understanding. Afterwards, we'll figure it out you know, what you meant or what you want, why you wanted us to do that or whatever. And that's sort of the sages interpreted that way. And I said, I, I thought, this is what the prophets were, were doing. They're just, they're pushing right behavior. And that's, and doesn't matter why. It matters that you perform. And it's through performance. And that's why he says, you know, put your shoulders back. That's mm-hmm. going to make you behave like a person who's competent. Who, uh, a person who's sure of himself. I mean, really, you could say, well, you, it's, it, that's very lowbrow. Oh, fake it till you make it, you know, but it's not that simple. Um, so there's a lot of thing about prophets. Um, you know, they're, a, a lot of the time they're angry because mm-hmm. they, they get it and they don't understand why you don't get it. Yeah. And, and in my article, I said, uh, you know, it reminds me of, um, it's like when, when uh, oh, the, and the thing that they are most concerned about is idolatry. They can't stand idolatry. They can't stand false gods. That makes them truly nuts. It's like when Moses went up to the mountain to talk to God, and he was up there 30 days writing the Torah, and he came down with the Ten Commandments, and what did he see? He sees all the people of Israel dancing around a golden calf, and like, you know, and he's so furious, he throws the commandments, the, the, the tablets on the ground, and they break. Well, he was furious, furious. It was like, Geez, they couldn't be without moral leadership for 30 lousy days before they they turn pagan, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and I think he is fighting a kind of, it's not so much paganism in our society. In our society, it's nihilism. Uh, so what what the prophets of old were struggling against was paganism and, and, and the horrible practices around them of throwing children into the fire to appease Moloch uh, and uh, uh, the lewdness and, and uh, lack of sexual morality in, in, the, in the tribes around them. Um, so that was their, you know, idolatry. But our false gods are like Marxism and nihilism and social constructionism. And it's all these, it's all these uh, ideas that have their roots in utopianism and in a, the perfectibility of man and the arrogance of man. Mm-hmm. We've done away with God. We've done away with the Bible. We've done away with Christianity. We've done away with religion. That's old news. We're we're too smart for that. Mm-hmm. We're gonna we're gonna create a society that's so much better, that's so much more beautiful than anything 
that was thought of in the past. And we're going to do it because people are infinitely malleable, and all we have to do is decide what we want. Oh, we want men and women to be entirely equal? Shazam! They're equal. They're the same, and there's no difference. So um, uh, we want, you know, we want... uh, 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 I don't know, name it, name it, whatever, what, progressivism, the whole idea of progressivism. Equality of results. Yeah, yeah, equality of outcome. That's, yeah. In fact, Jordan Peterson says, uh, you know, the, the extremists on the right, there, there's, how do you know when an extremist on the, on the right is beyond the pale? Uh, it's when they start talking, you know, they're, they're, they're fascistic and white supremacists. When they start talking about that, then you know, we're out of here. Like we have nothing, want nothing to do with you. But what is the one thing on the left that is so far beyond the pale that you know, oh, that guy, no, no, he's, <laughs> and it's equality of outcome. And he says that is the mark of somebody who will do anything to ensure that uh, it's not merit or individual ambition or work or anything else that determines where one gets in life. It's this idea that all must be equal. And and the people that believe that also believe that to get to that perfect utopian stage, you can break a lot of eggs. And that yeah. means you can wreck a lot of lives. Uh, it's like women who say, well, yeah, we know sometimes men get falsely accused and sometimes those guys go to jail. Yeah, that's true. But you know what? The end result is to make sure that women, you know, they're not afraid to come forward. So if, if we can get more women to, 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 uh, uh, to come forward and, and get justice, it sort of doesn't matter about those guys that go to jail that are, because you know what? It's for the cause, right? So people that believe it's like the optics, right? It's like, you know, God's side. He says like, as a, a Lebanese Jew, his brother um, was a really fantastic wrestler, if I remember correctly, and he 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 finished first, and so he was going to represent Lebanon at an international event, and they came and basically, you know, threatened their lives and said, "You're going to step out of this because he was a Jew." And, yeah, yeah, they said we don't like the optics of a Jew representing yeah. Yeah. Lebanon, right? So once you've decided that you want to have a certain kind of outcome and a certain optics. Mm-hmm. People can be willing to, well, as you say, break a lot of eggs. Yeah, I mean, this is this is this is Marxism. If you truly believe, if you truly believe that the world can be perfect, which of course no conservative believes, but if you truly believed that, wouldn't you do everything in your power to make that happen? And wouldn't it stop mattering that individual lives were getting wrecked as long as as long as you were getting closer to that very elusive goal of having the perfect society? So. Uh, yeah, this, this whole equality of outcome thing is, is, is the mindset that is idolatrous because it, it, makes, uh, it makes man the arbiter of the good, the perfect, the beautiful. The, I mean, it, it turns men into gods, and that's modern idolatry. And I do see him like the prophets I never along. thought about that, but I totally agree <laughs> with you. Chasing it, it the money, le- you know, Jesus no, chasing fits. the money lenders out of the yeah. temple. Well, he's and, the, cha- and yeah. the message always in the in the prophets, like you see with Jeremiah, with even Jonah, with Joel, with lesser extent with Ezekiel. But their their message is always sort of, even now declares the Lord, 
if you return to me yes. with all your heart, even now you'll be restored. So yeah. the idea is if you get back to first principles, if you get back to what makes your community what it is and what, mm -hmm. what it really works in it, that this will uh, you'll be saved. But if you continue on this path, yeah. it, this path leads to destruction. This yeah. path leads and I really... And also, another thing that the prophets were, uh, was they were very binary. <laughs> they were very good and evil. Yeah. You know, this you may eat, this you may not eat. Male and female, he created them, you yeah. know? And um, this whole idea that uh, gender is constructed and that you can be fluid, you know, this whole idea of fluidity is actually a very subversive idea because it undermines the idea of objective reality uh, and, and to teach children, to teach children that maybe you're what you think you are, that you appear to be, maybe you're not. Like, this is so subversive and undermining. Yeah. I, actually, yeah. I actually think that, uh, that gender is in, in a small percentage, in a, in a small percentage of the population. I see this with my students. Mm -hmm. I've seen this in my, my life. Yeah, non-conforming. Yeah. There's, there's a, a small percentage of people who are uh, quite gender fluid, and mm -hmm. they are sort of very... And, and that's actually what they're like. I mean, one guy I'm thinking about in particular, like I've known him since we were little kids. He's always been, um, I mean, he's he's straight, he's heterosexual in terms of, you know, he, but he's always been very, very kind of androgynous and very sort of gender fluid. I'm not denying, I'm not denying I, those the, feelings. The, I'm not denying those feelings. But the thing is, and this is, always, this is always the problem, is do you, if you have a small percentage of a population of anything, right, that is a certain way, can you make broad generalizations the fact is is the vast majority of humans are not gender fluid they're very much kind of male or female in a very definite way so that seems to be the the usual thing like if you go to i don't know this is a silly example but i was up on in westmount the other day the park summit summit park the uh, yeah just opposite mount royal park and you know i saw a white squirrel right you see white squirrels yeah. it's a it's a color variant of the gray squirrel actually so but you see them once in a while if i were to say all squirrels are white because of the random white squirrel i see once in a while that would be inaccurate it still makes sense to call it the eastern gray squirrel because almost all of them are gray yeah, right? I like mean, you know, look, the, I, I don't deny gender dysphoria. I know it's a real, that's a real phenomenon. And I don't deny uh, that people are often non-conforming with their gender. I mean, you know, I, my, my granddaughter is, uh, is a tomboy. We used to call them tomboys, you know. Uh, always liked to dress in boys' clothes, plays hockey. She's a fantastic hockey John's, player. John's yeah, no, yeah. no, no, sorry, no. Joanne. No, no, it's yeah. Joanne, my, okay. my, my daughter. But I mean, uh, wears her hair quite short now. Um but there's no way she has and, and has never ever expressed any kind of dysphoria. She, you know, she 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 knows she's a girl. She's happy to be a girl. Like never has she. So, but if she hadn't gone to a private school, I am sure that uh, I mean she's now 13. But if she if this if she were five years old today and uh, insisted on wearing the boys' clothes, she'd be getting like this this indoctrination thing, you know. And do you sometimes feel like I mean I I. I'm so glad that didn't happen to her. But look, you can be as Camille Paglia, who says she's she's fluid in the sense she's non-conforming, and she's, but she's still a woman. She's a woman yeah. who maybe sometimes feels that she has male impulses or masculine impulses or whatever. 
but choose one or the other. I, you know, I don't care if people want me to identify them as that, the pronouns and stuff. But this idea that you're not one or the other is nuts. It is nuts. You might be a male who identifies as female or who has uh, feminine, uh, feminine uh, instincts or impulses or whatever. I, that, that's fine. Like live and let live, you know. But don't tell me you're neither male nor female, that you're some <laughs> other kin, that you're some other kin that, you know, like that's just stupid. That you've transcended. No, gender, I mean, so. look, 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 the, this yeah. is an ideology that wants to d- do away with all norms. It wants to do away with the family as the foundational uh, pillar of society. Uh, it wants the state to take over uh, the role of a guardian of children. And uh, it's very much a form of velvet totalitarianism, to coin a phrase that I didn't coin, that somebody else did. Um, and I call it a false god. Uh, it is Marxism, and it is a false god. Uh, and I think Jordan Peterson is like, he's like, you know, Jesus in the temple with the money, l- you know, the money changers, like, you know. Overturning out, with out, tables, out, yeah. <laughs> and saying, yeah. And he, he makes he makes people very, very mad. Like it's, he does. It's he makes them very angry. Well, because, because why? Because he's brought back the idea. Look, his book is full of references to God and Christianity, the importance of the, the archetypes, you know, that these things don't change. What he's saying is the world... It, there are archetypes. They don't change. You can't, you can't have a revolution and change the world and decide that everything that's come before was all baloney. You can't do that. And he's talking about God. They don't want to hear about God. He's talking about Christianity. They don't want to hear about religion. Um, they don't want to hear about spirituality. They don't want to hear about the soul. They don't want to hear. But millions and millions and millions and millions of young people do want to hear about it. So what does that tell you? It tells you that what they are hearing about in school is not enough. They're impoverished. Yeah. They are thirsty, and and that's why he has millions of people writing him and telling him, uh, as he as he sometimes says. I've heard him say in a in a in a conversation, uh, he says, you know, uh, young men come up to me after I've spoken, and they say, I just want to shake your hand because you saved me from a life of bitterness on the alt-right, and now yeah. I know what I am, and I can live a normal life, and thank you, and thank you, and when he talks about it, he chokes up, because yeah. he says this is so moving to him, that, that here's guys saying, I, you've changed my life, and saved me from being a really ugly person. Well, if they need him for that, why aren't they getting what they need from the norms of society, the educational, you know, the, 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 where they're marinating, I mean, you know, most of their lives. So, and the people in academia, instead of being humble and saying, well, you know, all these people are seeing something in him. I don't know. I don't see it, but I have to examine this more closely because if half my students are telling me that they love Jordan Peterson, that doesn't make him bad or wrong which which that their first instinct is to say no 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 you know you got to get over that like this is like a disease you've got you know no 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 it's terrible no their first duty intellectual duty is to say whoa i uh, something this is something this is a phenomenon mm-hmm. i have to understand this and i have to be objective about it and i have to be open minded about it instead of trying to shut it down instead of trying to uh, you know all these detractors have you seen all the uh, 
articles about oh, Jordan the Peterson. Hit pieces, yeah. But they're so yeah. filled with envy. Yeah. And they're so filled with hatred. And well, because they know that you should be reading something else. You well, be I mean, they're him. and they they're they they're inchoate almost with, and they keep saying, you know, the the tip off is the previously obscure Jordan Peterson. I love that. You know, yeah. the pre the once obscured Jordan Peterson. I love that. Yeah. It's like you or know, Einstein. Chris calls him a failed academic. I'm yeah. like, dude, oh, he teaches fail- at U of T. He's got more like- citations <laughs> in one of his articles than yeah. everybody else. That's his detractors put together in yeah. their lifetime. But but I mean, I love that. The once obscure, like Einstein was once obscure, you know? <laughs> and so was Bill Gates, you know? All these people were, and so was Mark Zuckerberg, you know? I'd like to introduce Zuckerberg, the yeah. once 42 John Faithful Hamer. <laughs> no, seriously, like, no, seriously <laughs> it's like, it's like uh, everybody was once obscure. Yeah. Knock it off. You, you're, if that's your best shot, man, yeah. you know, be embarrassed. Be embarrassed. Seriously? Yeah. Uh, I, so. see, I see an interesting uh, parallel to J.K. Rowling, uh, Peterson oh. and Rowling. Because the well, they're Peterson, making ta- the Peterson, tons of money. <laughs> the Peterson phenomenon and the Rowling phenomenon are both, they're similar in this respect, that their incredible, their success, their ability to sell an incredible amount of yeah. books and specifically to grab the attention of lots and lots of young people is one of these things that, should lead education departments, should lead educators and people who think about this stuff to completely rethink, right? And J.K. Rowling, she wrote a, just a savage, savage um, op-ed. It was in the New York Times a number of years ago where she actually cited all these rejection letters. Yeah. Got, you yeah. remember that one? Like from yeah, all the yeah, publishers? Yeah. And they were savage. And these were from people who are... You know, have PhD in education, people in the publishing. And they said again and again, they said, kids these days are stupid. They have no attention span. You have to dumb everything down for them. They're total idiots. Yeah. And these are like people who are in charge of supposedly yeah. loving children. And they said, they will never read such a long book. You have way too many big words. It's <laughs> Oh, and by the way, no boy is going to read a book written by a woman. So you better like change your name to hide the fact that you're a woman. That's why she went with JK Rowling. Yeah. But, um, and then she sold so much and it caused everybody to sort of say, wow, we thought there's no way kids could read a book this long. And they're tearing through these books that are hundreds of pages long. I think Jordan Peterson also should cause a similar kind of crisis of conscience because what he's doing, and it's funny what you just said before, um, Something like that happened in my class just the other day. One of these students who's a big Jordan Peterson fan, um, he said, he goes, you know, I was raised in a household um, by a single mom who was incredibly angry at men because of what had happened with my dad. And she was very, very involved. She was doing um, a degree like, like at UDM or something like that in like women's studies. And she was very kind of feminist and very angry about men. And so I grew up in this environment where I was constantly from a young age being told that I was like a monster just because I was male. Mm-hmm. And so I got really into like the men's rights movement and got became a kind of an MRA activist and became like this rabid MRA guy. And he said, and but reading Jordan, when I met Jordan Peterson, it made me realize that basically I was doing exactly the same thing that my mother did. Yeah. I was becoming this whiny person who blames structural forces, mm-hmm. you know, capitalism, globalization, patriarchy, feminism, patriarchy. Yeah, like yeah. I was becoming exactly yeah. the same kind of person 
that never takes any responsibility for their actions yeah. and for their life and blames other people and structural forces all the time. I was just inverting it. And he said, I suddenly, and so it's the same thing. He said, Jordan Peterson saved, saved me from the alt-right yeah. and from the MRA kind of, you know, Well, crazies. I mean, I think your Rowling uh, uh, example is very good in the, in the same sense that not only publishers, but uh, tr- people that write a sort of serious literature would look and say, Look at this, look at this, this middle brow, this, you know, she's writing an adventure story and she's making millions and I only sold like 200 copies yeah. of my life, <laughs> but it was a work of genius, you know, yeah, it was of a work course. of so, yeah. so I think one of the big things, and I've no, I, I honestly believe, uh, one of the things I believe about a lot of academics, not all, a lot of academics think that because they have a very high IQ, and because they've studied, you know, and they can read this jargonistic, you know, Derrida and Foucault and all that stuff, that they are kind of intellectually superior to other people, but they put that together with virtue, they're more virtuous than other people, and they put that together with the fact that they, they're not amply rewarded enough for yeah. their very special character. So that when they see, <laughs> and especially a fellow so academic, and a fellow academic who is, you know, before when he was previously obscure was you know peddling his psychology lectures and all that um well they could tolerate that i suppose but then he put them on youtube and he's making money from it and people are paying him yeah you know so i think it's the money i swear to god you know they don't want to admit that because it's what filthy lucre i mean oh no 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 they're above that because they're intellectuals and of course they you know they don't it's not the money it's not the money at all because they're in the world of ideas and you know it's ideas but but they're as grubby as everybody else we all (laughs) want we all want money and they want it too and by the way, they're pretty well paid, you know, to think their thoughts and 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 to write their impenetrable, yeah, you know, well things paid, that nobody yeah, reads so. except their other <laughs> their peers. Um, and I honestly think that's where the venom comes from. I think they could tolerate it if he was poor and traipsing around preaching intense, you know, to a bunch of Christians. They could they could they could roll their eyes and say, "Oh, look, there's old Jordan doing his." prairie prophet thing you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> um that would be okay but no no he's mainstream he's he's on the news he's talk he's talking you know on, on all the tv uh and he's and he's being invited to 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 england and to australia and to he's going everywhere and he's being feted no they can't bear it they can't yeah bear it and it comes out and you see in their prose if they really were engaging with his ideas you would see very measured uh well i think he's wrong here because you know but no it's 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 like drinking from a fire hose you know yeah. to 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 read these pieces and, and and you know what i stopped because somebody just the other day sent me oh here's another venomous piece and i said you know i think i've had my fill of venomous pieces on jordan peterson i i kind of <laughs> like him i don't need this crap you know yeah. i just i'm just going to uh I'm just going to, you know, put a, a a lock on that door and I'm going forward with my life. I'm I'm yeah. I'm not going to be defending him in print anymore. You know, other people can do that. Um but uh yeah. So so uh I, I, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. He himself thinks, you know, he said on a an interview with Wendy Mesley from CBC and she says, "Well, what's next for you?" and he said, "You know what? I I don't know. I I've, I've been on this roller coaster for like 2 years 
And he says, uh, he says, I feel like I'm on the wave, you know, and a tsunami, the wave, he says, and usually what happens with a tsunami is you, you fall off the wave and you drown, you know? <laughs> so he says, and that's probably what's going to happen is that I'll, I'll just flame out, you know, and it'll be over. And she was like very taken aback. And I said, you know, that's very interesting that he says that because that's to me very convincing uh, of the fact that he does not see himself as any kind of a guru or a messiah or a, a cult leader or, you know, he's not asking for people to follow him uh, and join his movement. He has no movement. He has no ideology. He has no, uh, you know, he's telling people, go out and live your life and do it the best way you can. That's, yeah. that's not a cult kind of thing. No, I mean, and that's the thing that's amazing. That's what, one of the reasons why I make the parallel to Rowling is that yeah. he's not, his message is not a coddling message no. at all. His message is again and again, you know, take response, clean up your room, take responsibility for your life, stop blaming other people, yeah. start, start actually appreciating have your gratitude. Your, yeah, have, have gratitude, gratitude for yeah. your mother. Don't whine about, yeah. I saw in a, in a one discussion where it was one of his, one of his talks and person at the mic said something about like his mother and Jordan Peterson was so he was so like he was a prophet he was yeah. totally he said you should honor your mother and you shouldn't be like you shouldn't be talking badly about your mother in public like this how your mother she... did not like you know she didn't abuse you she didn't do anything she cared for you like you should actually listen to her and respect her and show her like and I was like what and this guy's supposedly yeah, this misogynistic yeah. like cult leader like no far from being misogynistic i mean i i i yeah, he honors his wife he honors his daughter uh he tells men to be mature to be competent to make sure they that they can be good husbands and good supports and good fathers i mean he's giving them tremendous advice and um he himself i mean when he does talk about his own family it's a very nice picture uh, he says his father was somebody who made him believe there was nothing he couldn't do. And at the same time, he was kind of critical. Uh, and it was like, oh, that's very good what you did, but you can do better. You know, I mean, there was there was that <laughs> kind of um, uh, he, he, he would get his father's love and, and support the, the message of love and support. But also that message, don't don't be complacent. Go further. Try, try harder. And he said it was a very balanced message, and obviously it worked. Um, but, you know, he, he seems to have had a very traditional family life, and it paid off in making him a whole person. Uh, and he seems to have a wonderful family life himself. Both his children are on side with him, working hard. Uh, his son does all his... I, I'm in touch with him for stats. You know, he gives me all the stats on how many views and how okay. many... You know, he's yeah. obviously got a, a head for that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> data, data. He's into data. Yeah. In fact, he was the one that just told me we just passed the million mark in sales. You know, <laughs> uh, unbelievable. Yeah, 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 it is. No, he's. Uh, it's it's quite a phenomenon. I'm looking forward to seeing like what happens. I will say about the hit pieces on Jordan Peterson. I will say that one thing about them is that uh, they've stepped up their game. So a lot of the hit pieces were before were just completely off base like if you actually knew anything about jordan peterson you're like you yeah. clearly have not yeah you haven't read, read any of his yeah. stuff yeah. you haven't watched any of his stuff but i've seen a couple of them uh recently which were actually like really good like they made valid points um that that i some of them that i didn't actually know and so i, I thought wow okay so the, his his detractors are now getting people to actually read the book cover to cover 
before they write. Yeah, I've seen a few people right. say, well, I, his interpretation of Nietzsche is, like, and I'm like, okay, you know what? I'll give you that. I don't care Maybe yeah. if it's right or wrong because that's, you know, that's not my real concern with him is whether, you know, the finer points of Nietzsche and, and, and uh, I, I, he sure didn't get Solzhenitsyn wrong. That's for sure. Yeah, no, you've got that. <laughs> so, got I that. mean, yeah. the people who want to attack him on, on his sources and his interpretations – Go ahead, you know, fair game, and maybe they're right. I don't know. I mean, when I say he's a prophet, that doesn't mean I think he's perfect. In fact, I don't know any of the prophets that were perfect at all. They were, no. as I said, they were often angry, and they were often irascible, and they were often— Highly uh, disagreeable, yeah, as Jordan Peterson would say. Really, yeah. highly right. disagreeable, yeah. and, and, and uh, how could he be perfect in every intellectual way? But you know what? When you want to take somebody down— there's always there's always a, a a point of inflection where you can okay that's that's his weak spot I'm and you just bore away at it well you can do that if you want but I think you have to look at him in his entirety and and say is he a fake is he a and I don't think you can say that he is I I think that I, I think I'm pretty good at spotting yeah you know, yeah uh, empty empty words and hollow vessels. And that is not Jordan Peterson. Yeah, it that fits in very well to my final question to you okay. is that. It, but when you were actually just before you got here, I was talking um, with the producer of the podcast and he said, yeah, you know, Barbara Kay, she's such a gangster. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow, she, said, so she said he's she's so she's so gangster. He said she's so gangster. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I, I interpret that to mean, I mean, he's much younger than us. He's, you know, 20, no, but he's 25. I but what he meant by that is exactly what Jordan Peterson means by sort of being very disagreeable, not uh, an agreeable kind of plight. Yeah. So one thing I want to know is how did you become Barbara Kay? Like, how did you become <laughs> somebody that is just very willing to, like, say things and you, you just, like, don't give a shit? It's amazing. Like, you just <laughs> will take positions on things and say what you think. And um, it's, you know, it, it's amazing. I'm mean, just wondering, like, how did you, did you have, like, well, was think, it your okay. father, your mother? Was it something else? Yeah, we, like, were, we were a very argumentative family. We, uh, <laughs> I, I grew up in a house where uh, we were actually encouraged to be uh, highly, uh, it was a very Jewish house. And, uh, a Jewish intellectual house type. Well, thing, like. we weren't. It wasn't so much intellectual. My father was a businessman, and certainly not an intellectual. He was very brilliant in, in his business ways, but he enjoyed the, the hearing my sisters and I. You know, th three sisters, and we would back and forth, back and forth, and and he liked that. He liked liveliness of all kinds. Uh, to me, it was a normal way for a family to be was to be extremely. Um, open about your opinions and also quite aggressive in your style of argumentation. And by the way, um, it, there is a book by a guy, uh, Galanter, David Galanter, who wrote a book about the Jewish influence on the universities. And one of the things he said was, and this really, bang, that, it, it, he said, before Jews started to going to university in numbers, in high numbers, the whole style of, of the Ivy League was like the gentleman, very, you know, very playful. William Buckley. Uh, you know, was the perfect, he was argumentative, but his style was playful and very gentlemanly and very clever and witty. And, and you got the impression he cares, but he doesn't care all that much. You know, like, I mean, he did care all that much, but that, yeah. that was his style. But when Jews argue, they go for the, they go for the throat. You know, they, go, they <laughs> no, no, they, they really go for the jugular because yeah. Jews don't like fighting with weapons. And they learned over the years to fight with words. And um, and they do fight, and they're they can be extremely extremely disagreeable, um, and they play for keeps. So when you started to get Jews moving into the universities, 
uh, and there, when when it came to ideas, they weren't fooling around. This wasn't like a, a kind of recreational thing they were doing. They believed passionately, and they were very committed. And you got people like when you look at around at the, the New York intellectuals, Alfred Kazin and Norman Pothoritz, and all those, you know, Ir- 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 Irving Howe, and all those those great minds. Um, they were man with the words. You didn't want to tangle with them. So he said, you know, they brought into the university this very aggressive debating style and argumentative style. Well, it's a rabbinical school. That's yes, you it do. is. You're the Talmud, about, the yeah, Talmud. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, arguing yeah. all day long. And that and is the whole... To. Yes, and you're supposed to because, you know, that, that was our idea of combat. We didn't have dueling. I mean, Job even argues with yeah, God. Yeah, you know <laughs> what? We didn't... We weren't, we weren't so great in athletics, you know, in yeah. the old days and all that, but we were very good with the words. So I thought, yeah, that is so true and that is so typical of our culture. And uh, so I grew up with that. Uh, my own kids grew up in a home where it was it was okay to passionately argue. In fact, uh, in our country house, my my husband finally put up one of those big boxers bills. <laughs> and you know, when he got tired of this me, this is where he was always no, working I, on jeeps, well, and you were always yeah, reading. Yeah, 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 yeah. So my Sean my, talks about my son that, and yeah. I, my son and I would be constantly passionately arguing about something, and he would just finally get up and ring the bell. You know, enough, <laughs> enough. <you know? laughs> But, That's hilarious. But uh, the other thing I would attribute my willingness to mix it up with is uh, my age. Um, I went to school uh, in the golden age of, of education when the universities were opening up. There was lots of money for education. I was, uh, I was one of uh, a disproportionate number of, a uh, small number of women at the university. Most of, most of the people in my courses were male. I took that for granted, but it, it was not intimidating to me because I was not treated, in, I, I honestly can say, I do not remember being treated uh, patronizingly or in any other way. And guys mix it up a lot more than, than, than girls used to. And so I got into that habit of, of that debating style of like, uh, let's just do it, you know. Um, so also nothing was off limits. There was no political correctness then. So you could talk about anything you wanted and very freely too. And if you were objectionable or disagreeable or whatever, so you were. You got that reputation. So what? I mean, I I I I wasn't even political then. I wasn't political at all. But I, uh, whatever was under discussion, uh, you know, you could think freely and you could act freely and talk freely. So I brought that with me. I wasn't in journalism until I was old. I was 60 when I started. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I didn't, know. I mean, before yeah. that, I, I, I was a teacher. I taught English literature. I taught uh, at uh, Dawson and all, you know, some of the other Sejeps. But I was not a politicized person until the second referendum. And then I got into politics that way. Wow. And that was how I got into writing, as, you know, journalistically. And from there, you know, to the post and yada, yada. So, but because I was old when I started, I didn't have to prove myself to anybody. And I wasn't looking for... Um, I would have been more careful if I was like 30 and I want to build a career here and I don't want to make myself persona non grata in, you know, because if, if I get fired from this job, well, where am I going to get another job? There was none of that for me. So you're yeah. essentially like a tenured journalist. Well, I'm tenured in my head. No, yeah, no, I mean, but but <laughs> right, basically yeah. you have you have independence, right? Total I mean, independence. The reason why back in the day they had property requirements for voting and things like that is because they thought if somebody is is waiting for a paycheck then their boss has too much yeah. influence over what they can and cannot say. That's right. And so they wanted you to be independent so that you can, because they thought if you're going to have, we're going to have a democracy, mm-hmm. people have to be voting their conscience, right? So, yeah. but increasingly as, you know, as, as you know, it's very, people, it's gotten very, it's gotten very serious now about how, how you can lose your job. Uh, I could lose my job, but the thing is, if I, if I write something for the post and it's over the edge, they say, no, 
tone it down <laughs> or we yeah. won't print that or you yeah. know we're going to edit it or whatever so they they protect me from from that sort of thing and so far and i know i know what the, i know where the lines are um so if i'm writing for say uh jamie glassoff in in front page magazine i know i can go a lot farther and i often do um but uh the thing is that uh well, i'm losing my train yeah, I, I, I definitely. Well, I want to just circle back for a second to something you said about the Jewish tradition of, of arguing, because it, it just I was reading last night uh, Nietzsche's um, Nietzsche's sister, uh, who ended up becoming was a real sort of anti-Semite. And her husband. Oh, what a was, surprise in those. Her, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And her husband was a rabid anti-Semite. Yeah. And Nietzsche hated his brother-in-law ah. so much. And so Nietzsche wrote all these, uh, we have them, they're in a lot of his books, these diatribes against anti-Semitism oh. and anti-Semitism. You know, I didn't know that. I didn't oh, know yeah, that. Oh, yeah, a lot. Did not know that. But but they were they were primarily, if you look at when he wrote them, it's usually after family gatherings. Right. So, like, he just hated his brother-in-law. But one of the things, he, he has this long, very beautiful passage, it's in The Joyful Wisdom, where... He says what Europe owes to the Jews. And he says, like, wherever Jews have been prominent um, in intellectual life in Europe, they have brought a clarity, a cleanliness, hmm. an intellectual, like everything. He basically said everything that is good about intellectual life in Europe is uh, we owe it to the That's Jews. That's a fantastic compliment. Right? And he, and he, but then he goes on and he explains why. And this just blew my mind. He said, because of their status within European society, when a, when a Jew would actually be making an argument, they couldn't count on that genteel William Buckley kind of thing you're talking about. They couldn't count on being just believed because of who they are. Mm, that's right? very interesting. They, yeah. So they had to compensate for that by having really, really good arguments and really good evidence and being like as logical as possible mm-hmm. so that the person would have to agree because of the the force of the argument right they couldn't just you're right that's all they had going for them was logic and uh evidence and and all that stuff yeah they were they were now it's funny because nowadays there's still a disproportionate number of jews in academia but they are just as passionate about ideas that are bad unfortunately (laughs) so uh they're not bringing clarity they're they're bringing muddiness you know that's and and that 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 is very unfortunate yeah i saw the the podcast was on sam harris's site between ezra klein and and sam harris and i mean they're both they're both jewish but it was just fascinating listening to it because sam harris very much sounds regardless of whether you agree with him or not he sounds very much in the classical Jewish rabbinical tradition. He he's trying really hard to argue to get to the bottom of things. Yeah. He's trying to be as clear about what assumptions are, and you can talk about anything, and you're know, trying to get this. And meanwhile, you have Ezra Klein, who just sounds completely like like a Jesuit. He sounds like a where you're supposed to. This is the right way to think, and we begin with these principles. And you're not allowed to say this. You're not allowed to say that. And it's see, they don't realize themselves how ironic it is that that the revolutionaries who overturned the clerisy because of its dogmatism, they have become the new clerisy, and they they don't see that. They don't see that, and they've also lost their sense of humor. You know, the people with the best sense of humor are definitely not progressives. That's for sure. <laughs> No, yeah. really. I seriously, no, they, no, you have to don't. do a lot of laughing if it's you're pretty, not, or else you'll go, cheerless. or else you, yeah, it is cheerless. very cheerless, and and yeah. also because it's frightening, uh, you do a lot of laughing because you want to make fun of what you're afraid of. So it's it's. Uh, it's probably the most extreme example of that I've seen was when the movie Zoolander came out. Oh, you know, with Ben Stiller, I love it. And so I was 
watching this with uh, with my wife and with like a bunch of, and we were laughing hysterically and there was this one um this one woman who was at the at the party friend uh, old friend of my wife's uh, they've since parted ways they're not <laughs> friends anymore but she was the like really kind of intensely sanctimonious oh, yes. religious progressive type and she was just sitting there with a very disapproving look on her face. She looked like, you know, like Ashcroft. Like, and then um, after the movie, she went up and asked her, she said, like, what is, you know, are you okay? And she said, I think that movie is really disrespectful to male models. Oh my God. <laughs> and you she see? said, I don't think we should, I don't think we should laugh at that movie because it's disrespectful to male models. And you know, if you can't laugh at Zoolander, then well, you might as well take what, the pipe. You know what yeah, Annalisa yeah. <laughs> said. What Annalisa said. What my wife said to her. She said, "But did you notice all those cameos with with male models, like actual male models? Like they seem to be very much in on the joke, and yeah. they seem to find it very funny." Yeah. But that it just that just demonstrated to me this like total inability to like total. just have fun and laugh. Yeah, a no, bit. no, but, because uh, you're always, well, it's like the people in the Soviet Union, they couldn't have fun because they didn't know who was going to inform on them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll end there and I promise not to inform on you, Barbara. Thank you very <laughs> Thank much. Thank you very is, much for coming on. Hey, this and has I'll been a real you, pleasure. Yeah, and I'll gangster, see you next gangster. Yes. <laughs> I love it. No, that's my big takeaway. I'm a gangster. <laughs> Barbara, gangster. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yes. If you would like to uh, support the Likeville podcast, you can like us on iTunes. That's a good thing. You can share our podcasts. And if you want to materially support uh, the podcast so that Sebastian can pay his rent, (laughs) uh, you can go to uh, Patreon and support our Patreon account. All right. Thank you. See you soon.